0: Welcome to Songcraft,
1: Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar.
2: And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer, sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts whether you're a songwriter a music lover or just a fan of pop culture be sure to subscribe to the show via itunes so you don't miss out on a single episode we'd love to hear from you so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com
1: you're listening to whiskey walk a 2010 single by the band american bang that was co-written by the group's lead singer and guitarist and today's guest on songcraft jaron johnston After American Bang, the Nashville native went on to form the Cadillac 3, a southern rock-infused trio that was named one of the ten new artists you need to know by Rolling Stone Country in 2014. While finding success with his own self-described country fuzz sound, Johnston forged a second career as a behind-the-scenes songwriter for top country artists. Since 2012, he has seen more than a half-dozen of his songs hit the country top ten, four of which have climbed to the number one position. He has co-written the songs You Gonna Fly and Raise Em Up for Keith Urban, Southern Girl and Meanwhile Back at Mama's for Tim McGraw, Days of Gold and Beachin' for Jake Owen, Sunshine and Whiskey for Frankie Ballard, Donut for Billy Currington, and The South, a top 40 hit for his own band, which featured guest appearances by Florida Georgia Line, Dierks Bentley, and Mike Eli. Additionally, his songs have been recorded by Sarah Evans, Lone Star, Danielle Bradbury, Miranda Lambert, Kenny Chesney, Rascal Flatts, Terry Clark, Meatloaf, Loverboy, Leonard Skinnerd, and more. His music has been nominated for two Grammy Awards and two Academy of Country Music Awards, and it seems he's just getting started. Jaron, welcome to Songcraft. That's a hell of an intro, right?
3: <laughs> you, got
1: me, you got me all fired up. I feel like I'm about to box somebody. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Paul and I are, are both Nashville natives. We live in L.A. now, but we both, both grew up in Nashville. And, and I understand that you were, were born in Nashville and grew up there and that your, your dad, Jerry Ray Johnston, was a drummer on the Grand Ole Opry. Um, in what ways did, did being a kid around that very traditional country music environment kind of shape your musical sensibilities?
3: Man, I think um that's honestly the Opry thing he still plays there, you know, to this day every Friday and Saturday night. I think him doing that and me going with him on Friday nights or Saturday nights or whatever, um, kind of honestly is the reason I do what I do. Seeing that at such an early age, you know, I saw I saw Garth the first night he played the uh, the Opry. Right. I was probably like eight eight years old. I saw Keith Whitley, I saw, you know, Alf and Krause and Union Station the first time they played. Wow. And so just kinda of see, seeing that and uh and getting to kind of hang out in Hank Snow's dressing room, Porter Wagner's dressing room, <laughs> little Jimmy wow. Dickens. you know. Right. It, it, it's just, it was wild. It was, you know, it, it, it kind of made me fall in love with the craft of songwriting. And, like, you know, it, it, the cool thing is that you're seeing those, I mean, Garth Brooks was the biggest thing. You know, he was basically Michael Jackson at that point. Right. Sure, I mean, sure. like, he was gigantic wearing headphone mics and shit, you know. <laughs> like he, he, right, he, right. He, was, he was a rock star. So seeing that at such an early age, And seeing his show, even when he did the opera, man, it was a rock show. Right? You know, like it was—it was big. It was big time. So I think seeing that kind of made me really want to do this as a, you know, as a profession, and kind of made me start at an early age, really aiming towards that. You know?
1: Yeah. Which is interesting because you talk about Hank Snow and Porter Wagner and these kind of traditional guys, and here's Garth doing something very different and I feel like that's something you have tried to kind of do is bring some different elements into country music that's fascinating that you you kind of pinpoint that uh even way back when you're a kid
3: all right there's plenty of people doing it the normal way I guess you know right, <laughs> right. Like, yeah I think we're trying to do something a little different but uh, yeah man that's the Opry thing was very it, it still is a huge thing in my life I mean shit we played it uh Last week we played it, last Tuesday night. Nice. And it's just, every time you walk in that building, man, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. And so the opera you kind of represented your dad's uh, influence in your life. Was your mom also musical?
3: Man, she was a, believe it or not, she was a, a organist at the church. and oh, we wow. To Southern Baptist. And it was very, um, you know, we were that family that sat on the second pew, every, same spot every Sunday, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. And so I'd watch her play and dad would sing the bass parts, you know? <laughs> nice. It's just, it's a la- it's hilarious, you know. But, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of... I, I had a lot of music growing up. I was l- very l- lucky to have that.
2: You ever have any of those stories about messing around in church and your mom actually had to come down off the organ bench and come smack you? Oh, or... so,
3: <laughs> shit, yeah, man. <laughs> I think everybody knows I'm kind of a troublemaker. I was always... I mean, you know, as a kid, I was pretty straight-laced. But, um, yeah, that, that that definitely happened once or twice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Were you kind of consciously paying attention at that point in terms of singing hymns and, like you say, hearing your dad sing the bass part and figuring out like, oh, there's different uh, parts that people can sing to songs. And were you kind of consciously putting that together?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of figured that out. Like, it's really funny that you bring that up because I learned how to sing harmonies. Uh, We did a cover, me and this girl named Courtney. She was so hot. She was older. (laughs) She was a little older than me, but she stood next to me in the choir and we did a cover of lean on me the dc talk version
2: oh nice right.
0: yeah <laughs>
3: yeah going old school here boys so we you know I, I remember hearing her sing the harmony and i was like god dang that's what is that i like that you know and so yeah. i started singing with her what she would do and that's how i started, kind of learned how to sing doing that
2: yeah yeah well and so as you kind of developed into your teen years how did your musical personality change you know what you were listening to and beginning to define who you were as a musician
3: it basically when Nirvana hit, man, yeah. I was fucked. I was fucked. You know, like that, that was, that was the moment when Nirvana hit. And I was, uh, I think I was 13 years old, maybe 12 years old, something like that. And I heard, um, I think a buddy of mine gave me, and I went to this really terrible school called good pastor Christian. And
0: yeah. no, uh, just, was.
3: just for two, yeah, just for two years. And, uh, I didn't fit in at all, but i had a buddy that was really into like rock and stuff. And he gave me a, uh, it was infesticide man like one of nirvana's first ones, or maybe bleach i can't remember and i heard that and i was like well shit this is how you do it you know and and then uh i from there you know you get i got into rage against the machine dinosaur jr um sonic youth and that was kind of when i really started to blossom into like okay you know that's how you do it i just need to figure out you know (laughs) I don't know how, how I wanted to do it right. so me being from Nashville and being from the south I did have that really strong country upbringing uh, as far as music goes as a kid you know Don Williams stuff that my dad would listen to and stuff right. that people, people that were playing the opera so I think all those kind of things just I don't know molded into this Thing that I do, I guess. <laughs> right,
1: right. You know, and and you, you talk about that Don Williams stuff and that country stuff. I mean, also being a, a a guy that that grew up in Nashville, you know, I recognize now as an adult that a lot of that stuff kind of seeped in and became part of my DNA. But uh, at the time, like when I was a teenager and I was super into Nirvana and and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, uh, you know, I would I would never in a million years have have thought that. Country played any role You know uh, Did you kind of go through A a period where you Kind of went like Man I don't want anything To do with with that music
3: Oh yeah man I mean you know And that was what was So cool about Nirvana That I didn't have to When I had Nirvana And uh, you know Like you said Soundgarden All those bands uh, Dude and it goes on Like Sex Pistols Dead Kennedys When I overturned that When I got to that Like those cassette tapes These Smashing Pumpkins Gish I mean shit like that that, I was like I don't need Country at all (laughs) And then uh, What was so cool about the kind of changes that you find Leonard Skinner's, you know, and you find yeah. uh, Ram Jam, and you find Marshall Tucker Band, you find yeah. all these badass Southern rock bands. And I was like, well, wait, 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 wait. You know what I mean? Maybe,
2: <laughs> right? Maybe <laughs> I do need. Yeah, maybe you know something I mean? to so, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as a teenager, were you already starting to write songs?
3: Man, I started writing. My dad got me a classical, uh, uh, like a nylon string, Epiphone guitar, and a Kramer Hot Pink electric guitar <laughs> nice. when I was thir- thirteen for Christmas. He got me both of them <laughs> And and I just kinda literally started sitting down and the you know, the beginning is you're sitting there and you learn power chords and you're you're trying to figure out come as you are and you're trying <laughs> to figure out Silver Chair, everything off Frogstomp. And you're trying you're to right. you know, by ear you're just learning all these things. And I think that kinda led into I really didn't start writing until I was probably I guess probably college, like first year in college like probably 18 and it was just awful awful shit <laughs> you know like some of the worst songs you could ever think of and none of it made sense it's just but you know you got to start somewhere I, but i i i still find demos every now and then of like even stuff from like 5 years ago and it, it makes me cringe right like i can't even i can't even hardly listen to it man my <laughs> wife she makes me sometimes and it's It'll keep you humble. Well,
1: if I understand correctly, in the in the early 2000s, you were actually the drummer uh, in a band called Echo Cast that had kind of this crunchy Stone Temple Pilots vibe. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, you guys are
3: going deep. We're, we're, yeah, digging, going deep.
1: Deep. we're digging deep. <laughs> now, I, I know that you didn't write any of the songs on, on the group's uh, debut record, uh, Where the Future Ends. Was that by choice, or had you not really come into your own as a, as a songwriter yet in that era?
0: I
3: wasn't there, man. You know, and honestly, it's I was a I was a really good you know drummer back then. That's kind of what I was, you know, kind of focusing on. And I, I played for, I mean, so many you guys growing up in Nashville. You know, the, the big CCM thing is,
0: right. is
3: is a big thing there. And I played for so many, like for higher, um of those bands. And yeah. so yeah, I just kind of concentrated on that, and you know, and I was into failure and uh, all these like really kind of like. Moody like uh, math rock bands, yeah. China and stuff like right. that, and they all they all had they all had bitching drummers, and the songs they didn't mean anything. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like li- lyrically, lot like, those guys weren't really saying anything. They're just, I mean, or maybe they are. I just didn't get it because they don't come out and say
0: right. say it
3: like you do in country. Yeah, right. but so yeah, I just wasn't I just wasn't concentrating on that at the time.
1: Well, uh, following Echocast, you were playing drums uh, in another group called The Kicks, uh, and this time you were uh, a, a co-writer on a handful of the tracks, including uh, What Do I Have to Do?, which appeared on the band's 2004 album, Hello Hong Kong.
0: What do I have to do?
1: So at that point, you were kind of putting some of your songs out there, and and you know you touched on you hear some of your songs from years ago, and you go, oh, that's not the writing personality that I have now. Is there anything from from that era that you kind of go like, here's where I was kind of on the right track, where I was where I was forming myself?
3: That that literally that time that's there's two things that that did. That that's when I really did start. I was taking songwriting a lot seriously, and I was also seeing like, those guys, you know, and their management, like, I was behind the scenes, I was a drummer, but I was helping them write and everything, but I was also, like, kind of sick of seeing people do it the wrong way, and me being the drummer, I really didn't have much say in it, Right. and so, literally, when we were doing that record, we went to a cabin in the Ozarks, and we stayed there for, like, two months, and recorded everything, and that's back when you did it that way, you know, before, you know, my dad bought me an iBook, or whatever, you know, Mac... The first one or whatever, right. and I, I I had my own cabin there, and I literally learned Garage Band over that two months, nice, and started writing my own. I mean, I wrote probably twenty five songs. I did a whole record, and then another record and a half wow. of just kind of like you know, stupid songwriter John Mary meets Jack Johnson, whatever you know, Meet right. Yorn, and I was. That's kind of when I really started getting into it. And at the end of that band, I. Uh, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is bullshit." And before I even quit that band, I started booking shows as Jaron Johnson band, and it was Neil playing drums, and uh, but pretty much all the guys in American Bank. Right, right. And um, and that's kind of when I started going, and it's it's funny, cause it, but that band is the reason that I really started taking it serious because. Yeah. I was sick of watching people do it the wrong way or what I thought was <laughs> the wrong way, you know. Sure. But sure. dude, I tell you, I will say the Scott, man, he's a fucking great songwriter. That singer for uh, the kicks, he was he was really good and I think he was just kinda fed up with it and done with it too, so
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the early two thousands, uh, your friends Neil Mason and, and Ben Brown were in a group called Llama uh, that was signed to MCA. Um, and when, when they broke up, you joined forces with those guys and Kelby Ray to form the band Bang Bang Bang. Um, and there's a song called "We Were Young" on on your two thousand five self released. Oh I Shop, God, bastard! <laughs> Well, you know, what I hear in that song is you start to develop what I think has become kind of a signature for you and that you are very skilled in building songs around these really cool kind of classic rock inspired heavy guitar riffs. Um, Do you tend to approach the writing process with like a a riff or a hook as kind of the the genesis of a song idea? Or how do you typically go about getting started with with a new concept for a song?
3: Man, it's it's honestly different every time, but I think it's changed over the years. Like, back then, it would always be, you know, you, I'd probably start playing something, like, on a guitar and then kind of build it. But I don't know, you know, over the over the years, since you involve computers and you, like, loops and shit like that, I think it's kind of changed. But, yeah, I mean, hell, I wrote yesterday with FGL on their bus at a festival, and I walked in. I didn't even bring a guitar in. I just walked in, and they had this uh track plan and I'm I literally just top lined it with him, you know what I mean? So right. you know, and then sometimes I'll sit down with just I'll go out to Tom Douglas's house, man, and I I'll he'll he'll play piano and he will start something there or I'll just start something on guitar or I'll just have a lot of times dude, I'll be like, Hey, uh I have this title, raise him up. Well you know, and I just right. and I had a couple I had a couple lines, you know, so I, it's it's weird, man.
0: Right,
1: yeah. Well, Bang 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 landed a deal on uh, Warner Brothers' reprise label in 2006, and you guys were renamed American Bang. Um, and you released an EP that year called Move to the Music, but it took four years before the full album came out in, in 2010. Uh, talk a little bit about going yeah, through... But, hey, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> talk a little bit about you know, how going through that long... Development period with the with the major label impacted you as a songwriter.
3: Well, I'll tell you exactly what it did. It pissed me off. Is mm. what it did. It, it's that's the Cadillac Three first record is six or seven years of me being so pissed, right. and and that and it made me you know and honestly the the bang situation with Warner was a good thing because it turned me into a hell of a songwriter mm. uh, in a way where I had to be because I had to make fucking money because mm. they wouldn't let us be a band. You know yeah. what I mean? They wouldn't let us put out records, and so I I, I I dug in deep, man, and I started. I probably you know, 365 days in a year, I probably did 600 songs a year wow. because wow. I was, you know, you're constantly trying to write hits for the band, yeah, yeah. That, or what or what those dickheads in L.A. were saying was a hit, <laughs> and then you're also you know you're also trying to write country because I got a publishing deal and it, and it, I know I can make some money there, you right. know, so it was. It was tough, man, but I tell you, it did shape me into honing my craft, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, and and when American Bang's debut single finally did come out, Wild and Young, I mean, it hit the top 20 on Billboard's Mainstream Rock Chart in 2010. You guys were definitely a rock band but you you made your southernness part of your identity um as a writer are you basically writing about yourself and your own experiences or do you write from the perspective of, of characters that you just kind of know from having grown up in the south
3: i think now i write like i write differently now than i did when i was in bang because in bang like i said i was just trying to write that hit that they wanted yeah, yeah i think now these days i definitely write about my own experience that whole cadillac record is Is basically just me, like I said, being pissed and talking about where I'm from, talking (laughs) about my dad, you know, stuff like that, and like life experiences. Like, we've been on the road for 15 years, or shit, man, 12 years, and so there's a lot of stories in there, and you know, and it's even like, meanwhile, back at Mama's, you know, or like raise them up, those kind of life story, uh, folky kind of things. Right. That's me, you Mm. know. That's me talking about when I want to have a kid and how I want to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So it's or or me and my wife getting old, moving back to my mom's house. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just that's that's all life. That's real shit. You know. Yeah.
1: Well, American Bang's second single, "Whiskey Walk," hit the top forty on on Billboard's mainstream rock chart, but you know, ultimately, it it didn't happen for you guys with Warner Brothers um, in the long term. And in the meantime, you were starting to get some of your songs recorded. Um, Obviously, we know about your you're a great country success but at first you were starting to get some of your songs recorded by other rock artists in like 2010 2011 uh, A Thousand Horses recorded Suicide Eyes which ended up on the soundtrack of the remake of Footloose and um, Jack's Mannequin included the song television on their uh, People and Things oh, yeah, record. I like that song. Yeah wow. a great song and but one of the the kind of notable cuts in this period was Meatloaf's recording of If It Rains which you wrote with your bandmate Neil Mason now how did that come about?
3: man he came to town and uh, I was writing at Sony ATV at store where I write this today and that's my publisher and I he was he wanted to meet with like a couple writers and I was like but at that point I was the token rock guy <laughs> in the right. natural office you know and so it was like me and I can't even remember who else went in there like Blair Daly and a couple other guys and he kind of explained what he wanted and so I literally went in for the next week and I wrote like I don't know 10 or 12 songs kind of in the vein of what he wanted yeah. and If It Rains was actually a Bang 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 song and he huh. had heard that and that's what he was playing for everybody to tell him this is what I want huh. he was using that as an, as an example and he ended up cutting it And, um, and he said, I'll tell you what, man, super cool guy. And you kind of, you get in there and geek out because he was in Fight Club and shit. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And his meatloaf, and it was, that was a cool thing because it was my first, like, out of the box thing. And everybody in Nashville was trying to get on that meatloaf record just for bragging right. rights, you know? Right. <laughs> so that was cool. That was really cool for me and Neil. We still talk about that one.
1: Yeah. Well, the end of American Bang and the start of your writing songs for other artists was kind of like this this crossroads in your career where you uh, really kind of ended up taking both roads simultaneously. You, you soon started having massive success as a as a country songwriter, which we're going to talk more about in a moment, but you continued to write and record as an artist, and out of the... American Bang Ashes rose the band Cadillac Black, now known as the Cadillac 3, um, which was basically all the members of American Bang, with the exception of, of Ben Brown. Um, talk about in what ways Cadillac 3 is, is a different band than American Bang.
3: The difference between American Bang and Cadillac 3 is Cadillac 3 has a fucking goal. Cadillac 3 has a uh, uh, a mindset that nobody's going to tell us what the fuck we do. We do it our <laughs> right. way. And we're one of the most badass bands that anybody's going to see ever, and there's only three of us that's, that's that's the thing and we We don't fuck around, man, because we were in such a bad situation before yeah and uh and, and any band with a vision that has the drive that we have i mean that's, that's you don't ever see that and yeah. so so I think that's the difference between Cadillac and, and bang, and it's it's uh it's pretty exciting times for us right now, actually
2: yeah, kind of gave you that focus. And, uh, you know, kind of to that point, when when you guys were still known as Cadillac Black and you self-released your album in the spring of 2012, it had that lead track, I'm Southern. Well, I'm the first
0: one to say ladies first Last one at the bar with the Thursday.
3: year Hard to hit and hard to love, that's right Open up a can of Ill and a fight, yeah That's whiskey and cigarettes on my bread been in an old time, you cassette Smiles when I meet him cause I'm
2: and uh, the lyrics, if you don't like me, that's all right. You can kiss my ass and honey, I'll get by. Because where I'm from, that's what we do. If you was born down here, you'd probably do it too. I mean, that sounds like a little bit of that attitude you're talking about. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. I mean, there's a real swagger and kind of a Southern attitude in a lot of your songs. Um, it, in what ways, as a songwriter, do you hope to maybe contribute to the national perception of who Southern people are and what they're about?
3: That's a good question, dude. Um, You know, for me, I can only talk about myself. I can only say what I am and what we do. um, And that's kind of, that's the swagger that you hear in the band is like, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about anybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about me, the way that I was raised, and the way that I do things. And, And as far as other people, you know, what people think, the national, you know, the, you know, conception of what, uh, you know southern people are I, I can't control that all I can do is write the best songs I can about my heritage and about what I'm proud of right. and so that's what and that's what we do and that's what I think people you know are kinda of drawn to our band because of that because they realize it's me laying my shit out on the floor not anybody else's mm. it's just it's what we do you know it's,
0: it's, what, <laughs> yeah. it's tough to explain
2: well and you know in, in trying to find that voice one of the ways you've been able to cultivate kind of a unique southern perspective is in that behind the scenes role as a country songwriter, and you know the songwriting community in Nashville—it's kind of its own universe unto itself. And you know, not everybody that that writes other places or knows how to write songs is able to negotiate that thing in Nashville of meeting with, you know, another writer in a room and having an appointment. Maybe you got three or four hours and coming up with a song. Um, you know, talk about the first time that you made an appointment to get together in a room with a country songwriter or artist to create something, and how that particular kind of process has challenged you as a writer.
3: Yeah, that's. That's tough. I don't really know that I remember the exact like first one that I did. But well, that probably
2: means it wasn't I a disaster that. then. That's good.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was so uh, enthralled. I was so obsessed, and so it was so cool that somebody was paying me a yearly salary to go <laughs> write songs. You know what I mean? And I, I had been shit broke since I was a kid. You know, growing up, we never had much money. Uh, Dad did great at what he could, and but it's like when I got that first publishing deal. I remember walking into the famous building uh, downtown on the road there where I was writing, and I feel like it was, like, with Steve Bogard or something like one of those kind of uh, 90s big country writers, right. really cool guy. Right. But I remember being so weirded out by his formula. Huh. Like, he would get in there, and he had his computer, and he had a formula. Like, this song wasn't really a song. It was the formula. It was, like, all right, verse, chorus, hit him with a good hook, finish the story, chorus. Maybe a bridge if you want, but most of the time you don't do that. Right. And so if if you had any lyric that was missing, you go to bridge. But I remember being so like weirded out, but also excited about the formula, the formula side of it, you know, and how cool (laughs) it was that you walk in there and you just get into it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. You know, it it sort of speaks to that thing of there's, uh, you know, some people kind of get a little imbalanced one way or the other, but there is kind of the craft. You know, aspect of it, as well as kind of the inspiration and then just sort of the raw creativity of it. And, you know, your first charting hit as a country writer, per se, was Keith Urban's uh, You Gonna Fly, which wound up becoming a number one record. Um, not bad for a first charting
0: single. Yeah.
1: What's the story behind that song? Oh, man, that was... um,
3: I think it was... It's funny. I I wrote it with uh, these guys, Chris and Preston, and they're in a band called Low Cash Cowboys. Right. Um, And they came over, and at the time, you know, they had a deal, and I think I was still on Warner, actually, with Bang. And uh, I was trying to write a song for their record, and they were coming over trying to write a song thinking that they were going to get a song on the American Bang record because I had to deal (laughs) out of L.A.
0: Yeah. And
3: so... I had that track kind of going, and I had a little bit of the chorus kind of mapped out, you know, Blackbird and whatever that lyric is, New Orleans and all that shit. At that time, I was putting states in every song, <laughs> and I still, I still use that trick quite a bit. That's good but, uh, for the live version. Yeah, yeah, but I, uh, you know, so I, I, I had some incense burning. I remember I was kind of started vibing, and Preston and just started rapping that one, two, three, baby, don't think twice, because... He had that as like a hook or something, and I was like, "Dude, let's just start the song out like that and build a story around it." Yeah, and uh, tie it into my New Orleans thing, and it turned out actually right in between, like the demo, the original demo is like right in between a low cast song and an American Bang song. Huh. It's like the yeah. perfect mix, and yeah. and Keith ended up loving it, man. And called me, and Jimmy Wayne was originally going to cut it, and then Keith called and he's like, "He's like, Darren, Keith Urban." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's up, dude? And he's like, he's like, I, I love this song. I'm gonna cut it tomorrow. Come over. And so I went over and hung out and watched him do it. And I mean, those are the those are the moments. You know, you do yeah. all this shit for oh, that. You, yeah, you get man. to go in and you kind of see it come to life. And you're hanging out with one of the most badass dudes on the planet, <laughs> Keith Urban. You know, it's great. Yeah. Dan Huff. You know, you got everybody in there.
1: It's really yeah. cool, man. Yeah, you're like, sorry, Jimmy Wayne, man. I had to I had to
0: do yeah.
2: it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You and Tom Douglas wrote a song called "Sing 'Em Good, My Friend." That Kenny Chesney. That's one of my favorite ones.
0: Sing 'em good, my friend. Oh
1: yeah. This old guitar case has been a million miles. Then a fool's disciple missed dance recitals, and the birth of every child.
2: Yeah, and that was on that Welcome to the Fishbowl album in 2012. And that, it's a it's a pretty weighty song uh, about an older guy whose wife is dying and he has some regrets about music taking him away from his family for years and sells his guitar to a young guy and then he says he says to the guy, I left some songs in this guitar. Sing them good, my friend. That's it's awesome. What uh, what inspired that concept?
3: Dude, me and Tom, we were just, we had written one song before that called True Blue that was, it's still a brilliant song, I think, that nobody's cut, but McGraw had it on hold for a bit, and then he let it go, so, like, literally the next week, we wrote again, and we started writing, like, every Tuesday or something, Mm, wow and, uh, out at his place, and we literally, that day, man, we sat and smoked cigars and drank whiskey, we were there for five hours, maybe five and a half hours, and we did that one, and a song called After the Music Stopped, um, I think almost either the same day or one day, and then the next day, and I mean, we were just sitting there, literally in tears, building this story about this wow. dude. And, You right. know, the wife hooked up to some machine downtown. I mean, yeah. it was like <laughs> right. we were we were on fire, man. And so it's like that was one of those songs that literally, you know, even when I hear it now, I think about the, being in that room that day and us both in tears, thinking about mm. our dads. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. shit like yeah. that. Like it was, it was, it was heavy. That, but I'm real proud of that one. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a great song. Uh, and you had some pretty diverse cuts in, in 2012 with charting singles by country mainstays like Sarah Evans and, and Lone Star as well as a couple album cuts by Loverboy um, but given the uh, given the heavy southern rock influence of your own music i'm guessing that probably one of the more exciting co-writes that happened that year was Leonard Skinner's Mississippi Blood which you wrote with Skinnerd members Gary Rossington, Johnny Van Zant and Ricky Medlock
3: Sip mud and
1: I'm sinking Tell us how that happened and, and what that Experience was like for you
3: uh, You know that's one of those things that You just you're like what the hell am I doing You know like <laughs> I'm in this room and I'm at a hotel Out in uh, Brentwood Residency Inn or something like that Residency Suite right. and I'm sitting here With my guitar and I'm Hanging out you know telling stories And hearing stories from Gary and and ricky and johnny and it it, you know that's tough to explain like since then we've become dear friends you know we've toured with them many times and you know they're they're idols and so you you try to you try to remember those moments and just kind of be cool (laughs) and and not you know (laughs) keep together geek out man (laughs) yeah and i you know I i remember that day man i was in there trying to start as many things as i could with them because i knew once i got got them to a certain point i could take them home and right Put, put my own spin on them and the shit man if they didn't want to do it there's nothing cooler than being in a southern rock band and saying hey I wrote this shit with Leonard Skinner totally. we're going to play it with, with American <laughs> Bang or whatever you know what I mean so, <laughs> right. it's Amazing. pretty wild man yeah
2: um, well in the summer of 2013 you landed your second number one country hit with Tim McGraw's Southern Girl
0: sweet than- Southern
2: girl. What's the story behind that song?
3: Um, I wrote that um, at Big Loud Shirt uh, down on Music Row yeah. with Rodney Clawson and Lee Thomas Miller, and we walked in. And what's what's weird about that that day is that when. I'm trying to think of what it was but I'm pretty sure the day that we wrote that song I got a call from Abby my publisher and she called me to tell me that I had the next Keith Urban single and oh. that was gonna be You Gonna Fly <laughs> that's yeah. a good day and so uh, well, yeah, I walk in and I tell the guys and they're like high and me and shit you know and everybody's really excited and I had the title Southern Girl <clears throat> I think and we just started, I started playing that little riff and I remember um, I remember Lee telling a story about he wrote that Great Jamie Johnson song in color. Oh yeah. Um, And so he he started the day out after I said that he's like, man, you know what I uh, I, when I wrote whatever in color, you know, we were sitting there playing. That's ironic that we just talked about Skinner because we were playing uh, Sweet Home Alabama really really slowly, and that's how that song came about. But the same chords, you know.
0: Yeah.
3: And 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 so I was like, oh cool. So I started kind of playing something in D, and it ended up being the riff that was going to be Southern Girl and uh and you know we just we hit it and, and it, was, it was it was a good day man it was at least brilliant <laughs> rodney's obviously brilliant and he had all like all those lines like uh kansas or wheat filled hair and shit like that that's all lee man
2: he's mm-hmm. brilliant <laughs> yeah well, that is a pretty good day. You hear about one uh, number one single that's about to happen, and then you write another one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, not Yeah, and bad. if you
3: think about it, you know what's really funny about that, if you think about it, man, that co- that song's got all kinds of states in it, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: you, you know, a lot of writers use, like, a thesaurus, you use an atlas, I yeah, guess. Exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was walking with a big-ass map.
1: <laughs> right. Um, well, and I understand that that uh, Tim McGraw actually wanted you guys to to change some words in that song, too.
3: Yeah, man, Um, it was like, the original one was something like Daisy Dukes and golden curls or some shit, and he didn't like that line, and so I looked up to see what color Faith's eyes were, and they were hazel, and I said, you know what, and I put hazel eyes and golden curls. And he cut it the
2: next week. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Right, uh, always, uh, always go with, with the wife. That's good. Well, once you started really having success as a writer, your band, the Cadillac 3, signed a record deal with the Big Machine label, which, of course, is best known as the home of Rascal Flatts, Tim McGraw, and, of course, Taylor Swift. Um, and they re- reissued your previously self-released album and started making videos for some of the songs, including Tennessee Mojo. Um, so here you are, you're signed to the most important independent label in town, but you're also having big hits as a writer for others. Did your bandmates ever get involved in the conversation on which songs get held back for the band and what gets pitched to other artists?
3: You know, there's been some awkward moments between me and uh, Scott, or shit, our label guy, he's one of my best friends. And right. what's funny is, like, it's not so much the band guys, but like, because they don't care. You know, they, they're both right, and we, we obviously just want the best for the band, whatever is right. going to be good a good song but also keep our cool and that's the main thing we try to do is okay, like, but there has definitely been some weird moments between me and scott and the a and R team when um <laughs> they'll hear you know they'll hear something on the radio and they'll find out that i wrote it or mcgraw <laughs> cut something and they'll be like what the fuck jaron you, know, you can't be you can't be doing this man you can't be giving all your songs away you know, it's it's tough, man. It's a win win either way. You yeah. know, like it's like it's great. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, do you do you wear uh, consciously? Do you do you wear different hats as a songwriter? Do you say like, hey, today I'm the Cadillac Three guy. I'm going to write this kind of cranking southern rock riff kind of thing for the band. But you know, tomorrow I've got an appointment to be the commercial country guy, and I'm going to do something that I think would be good for Tim McGraw. You know, or it, 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 is that a conscious thing for you?
3: No, man. I mean, honestly, I just write what I. You know, I just. When I start writing, if it turns into a Cadillac thing, it is, and if it's not, it's not. You know, I like. It's funny because my publisher will ask me. She's like, "Okay, I'm, I'll send her a song. Like, hey, this is a new one I did with so and or whatever, or I wrote it by myself." Yeah. And sometimes she'll hit me back and be "So, am I holding this for TC Three or is this? You know, can I pitch?" And right. I'll be like, "Either hold, either hold or pitch." You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think lately the songs have been getting where there's a, a thinner line between both because I think that we want to grow every band wants to grow and like white lightning is a great example of a step in that direction right. um, that we have out right now so you know I, I I'd literally just try to write the best song possible if it turns out into something that we would like to do we do it and if not we, we pitch it you
1: know right right well after Big Machine kind of picked up you guys' uh, self-released album the first newly recorded single that they released on you guys was was The South which featured guest appearances by Florida Georgia Line and Dierks Bentley and Mike Eli and that was a top 40 country single in, in 2013 and was nominated for a 2015 ACM Award for Vocal Event of the Year it's all about the
0: sound Georgia Alabama Mississippi
1: Um, and, and here we are, you know, two years later, um, we've seen a, a couple of additional singles have been released, um, but we haven't seen that, that new Cadillac 3 album yet. Should should fans be at all concerned that this is another delayed album release like we saw back in the American Bang days?
3: No, man, it's it's almost done. I mean, like I said, we, you know, when we signed with Big Machine, we had that record done, and we took that record by ourselves as far as we could. We, tr- we you know we did it we toured by ourselves just the three of us in a van for yeah. literally two years and then we'd realized that we wanted people to hear this record more and so we that's why we took it to Scott and signed there and yeah, um, you know just so that record could have a life and so I think right now we're almost done with the other record it's just a matter of us getting home and being off the road enough to, to finish it Right. Um, you know the country works a lot different than, than rock does man you know it's like there's really, if you have a record out, which we do, there's really no there's no rush to put out a new record until there's a reason for like, mm. Like, for de- like demand for new music is like, it, it, until, like, like say, lightning, until lightning gets to a certain point on the charts, that's when you want to put out your record. you got to yeah. be a little bit more strategic about it um, in this market that we're in. Otherwise, music just kind of gets lost.
0: Yeah, and true. so
3: I think... I think, you know, we're, Europe's a little different. We're doing a lot of stuff over there, and we're putting out more music quicker because they run through singles, like, every three weeks, you know? <laughs> Jeez. We're, on our se- we're on our seventh single out there in a year and wow. a half, and here yeah. we're on our third, you know what I mean? So it's like, I think that, that record's going to come out real soon. We just, we're waiting for the, the the right time where it makes the most impact, I think.
2: Right, right. Well, and out of all the Cadillac 3 fans out there, probably one of the biggest ones is Jake Owen. Um, He he included five of your songs on his hit 2013 album, Days of Gold, and the title track, of course, was a cover of the Cadillac 3 song that you wrote with Neil Mason. Um, That was the first single, which went to number 15, and then you got yet another number one single with the song, Beachin', which you wrote with John Knight and Jimmy Robbins. When it comes to pitching, do you pretty much kind of like leave that up to your publisher? Do you get involved in pitching your own stuff? Or do you, you kind of just like let the chips fall where they may when you got these relationships and these friendships? How does that kind of work? It's
3: definitely changed over the years. Like, nowadays, like, pitching was definitely, you know, literally the, the moment we got done, I, I called Chesney and I said, Hey, I got something you got to hear. Okay. Sent it to him and he, I sent him first and he was already done recording. So he was like I, I don't think I'm going to do it this time but so I go cool I sent it to Jake immediately next and he he loved it you know and I think um that one that song was definitely we obviously had those two guys in mind when we were writing it yeah. you know what I mean
0: yeah
3: and so I think with songs like uh, I'm trying to think like you know like if I have something man that I think Dirk would really love I'll send it to him you know what I mean mm-hmm. or if I have something that and just because I, you know, I'm I'm the, I'm such good friends with these dudes now, and they're it's it's kind of weird. Sometimes you don't want to be that guy, like sure. you let the publishers hand it, but if it, it's just the perfect song, like Raise Them Up, for Keith. I called him and I said, "Dude, you've got to hear this. This is like, this is great, and I want you to hear it first. Yeah, and he he, he cut it immediately, and it, because it was really just the perfect fit, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah. And
3: so it's if it's the perfect fit, it's the perfect fit. Right. But uh, a lot of times you want to stay out of it because you don't want to be that guy always trying to get your song set <laughs> by your Right. Friends. Yeah.
1: Right. You don't want to hit the guy up every three days. I got another perfect song for you. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, another one of your hit songs, which has a very different feel from Beechin, is Meanwhile Back at Mama's, which was a top ten for Tim McGraw last year. And it has this really kind of organic, uh, folky feel.
0: Meanwhile back at Mama's, the porch light's on, come on in if you want to. Suppers on the stove and beers in the fridge. Red sun's sinking out low on the ridge smoke um, cigarettes, whiskey keeps his whistle and funny the things you thought you'd never miss in
1: a world gone crazy as these You received your first Grammy nomination for Meanwhile Back at Mama's which got a nod for Country Song of the Year in, in February of 2015 um, A lot of your songs obviously have this kind of rockin' rowdy vibe but this one is, is, is pretty laid back and I'm wondering if you're noticing um, a bit of that country traditionalist we talked about the the kid that grew up with Don Williams and Keith Whitley are you seeing those things kind of rise to the surface now more as you sort of continue on in, in the country world
3: yeah man I think you know I don't know, you know it's, I, it's tough to see where that comes from but I think it is it comes a lot from me going through those songwriter years as a kid listening to David Grey and you know like all that kind of yeah, stuff yeah. where you you know like that kind of thing and but like I said, growing up in Nashville, man, that that love of a country twist on a on a line and a story, I just I I can't I can't get enough of that. So I think that's what channels a lot of this, like raising up and meanwhile and stuff like that. I, you know, it's tough. It's tough to pinpoint where it comes from. You know, I don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, the exact same day that Meanwhile Back at Mama's was released as a single, Frankie Ballard's Sunshine and Whiskey, which he wrote with Luke Laird, was also released as a single. Um, And it would go on to become your your fourth number one hit and your second song that I'm aware of after Cadillac 3's I'm Southern that name checks Tom Petty. Uh, Is he a big influence on your writing style?
0: Oh, man,
3: yeah. he's. I mean, there's not many out there that can put a spin on a lyric like he does. And and also Mm. that kind of cool swagger. Like, you know, we kind of try to rip off. And, and Cadillac um, He's You know He's just a brilliant guy man. Even his new stuff I think is just really great And yeah. what him and Mike Campbell do You know Jeff Lynne, All those guys When they were making those records It just It just baffles me You know They're yeah. writing those songs man yeah, And it's yeah. What's cool man You guys seen that documentary The down? Oh yeah
2: Yeah sure All like 20 so, hours of it
3: <laughs> No shit right yeah, yeah we watched We watched it this morning On the bus actually uh-uh.
2: But it's, it's amazing
3: It's so funny Like if you look at Back then you know He said something in it And he goes like it's when he was writing like I think it's a uh, Insider and uh Stevie Nicks, uh he's writing songs for Fleetwood and all that stuff and, and they're like, Yeah, yeah, don't write us something like like we do. We know what we do. We want something like you do. Yeah. <laughs> and I always right. thought that was so rad and I think that's kind of why a lot of people have been drawn to some of the songs that I write is just because it is a little bit different and the demos sound like shit and you know it's just <laughs> like they just they want that kind of thing you know it's it's really funny I, but yeah tom petty man he's a huge influence
0: yeah
2: well and i hear some of that petty influence on billy currington's donut uh, another top five single for you that was released late last year
0: we can get on it just take a shot and you can see
2: and you know it's got kind of a feel uh that's as much about the production sort of as the song and you were just mentioning the demos do you get into that when you're writing the song like kind of building the demo as you go or do you kind of write them stripped down and then let the demo process become what it is
3: i usually demo as we go just because it's i mean for time reasons it makes the most sense and you you're kind of fresh on it and your ideas are just flying and it, it makes it a lot more fun for me too you know cause you're you got a bunch of different things going on you're not just pounding yourself over a lyric
2: right. you know what I mean like right. it,
3: it's kind of fun to do that and yeah Donut we definitely did channel some some petty in that guitar riff <laughs> <laughs> right
0: right,
2: right. Um, well w- and one of your most recent singles was Raise Em Up which we talked about uh, a couple times before uh, Keith Urban and Eric Church duet came out earlier this year it was a top ten hit
0: get those white sails sailing down to Mexico it's just a
2: Um, You Gonna Fly was the fourth single from Urban's Get Closer album, Southern Girl was the fourth single from Tim McGraw's Two Lanes of Freedom album, and I'll Raise Him Up was the sixth single from Urban's Fuse album. Um, as a songwriter, you know, it's great to get a cut, but you obviously want that single. Talk a little bit about the anticipation of waiting and hoping that your song is going to be the one that gets pulled as a single, and then, you know, waiting for it to get to the charts. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of hoping and waiting in that process, huh?
3: Yeah, it's pretty brutal, man. Honestly, because they're kind of like they're like your babies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you want to see them do as well as they can. You want them to grow up and be huge. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. do this thing, and you're waiting to find out. And we had all kind of known that Razor Mouth was going to be a single because I told Keith I was going to kill him if he <laughs> if he, did. <laughs> he didn't. We didn't do it. And uh, you know, it's 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 hard sometimes. I'm in I'm in a situation kind of right now with a couple of different artists that have cut a bunch of songs and. You know you're waiting to find out if uh if it's going to be the single or not and yeah you know i've lost a couple man i've lost a couple of really good songs that weren't singles. Mm. like i'm a fire that david nail cut was one of my favorite ones i've written with tom douglas and, and it wasn't a single It's a title track like i've been getting a lot of title tracks yeah but sometimes you lose the single and it's like that's, it's very frustrating at times but it, it you know it's also a very good problem to have yeah, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah exactly You can't complain too much um yeah well, speaking of anticipation, I understand that you actually wrote with Aerosmith's Steven Tyler for his uh, forthcoming country album. Do you have any sense of whether or not any of your songs are going to make that record?
3: Uh, yeah, I think one will. Um, I'm not really sure where they are with that yet. i talked to him. Um, he's Man, it's crazy. He's become a good friend of mine, too. And like that's another one of those moments I was talking to you about like, oh, when sure. I was with Skinner. Yeah. It's like you sit there and you spend... like I think he, it's, he, he told this story. He was like... Um, He's like, man, I went over to. I was like, where'd you get that amp? And I was at his house, and he goes, Oh man, a buddy of mine, Johnny Depp, gave it to me. Yeah. I'm just like, shit. <laughs> you know? And he goes, he goes, it's weird. He wanted me to come over to his house and write a song, and so I came over there and wrote a song with him. And you know, you, he's like, you spend the first uh, ten, fifteen minutes, you know, kind of freaking out because you're sitting there with Edward Scissorhands. You know what I mean? <laughs> or right, uh, whatever. You know what I mean? Right, like that, right. He's in, he's talking about, you know, being starstruck, and I go. Well, we're about six minutes in, so I'm going ne- to need some time here, buddy. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but, but, you know, that was a cool thing. I think that uh, the song we did is really cool, really rootsy, and it's, uh, I don't know, man, it, it was fun. I think, I hope it makes it, you know?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it's a trip to see guys like Steven Tyler, you know, kind of flocking to Nashville. It's become such a boom town in recent years, and it, as someone who grew up there around the music industry, and you're obviously very much still involved in the industry now, what is your perspective on the ways the city has changed?
3: It's pretty wild. I'm, I'm pretty irritated with the uh, all the cranes and all the <laughs> right. knocking down studios right. and building condo buildings. I Jeez. think we have enough condo buildings. Right. But other than that, as far as people moving in, it, it's really neat because I think Nashville is a very cool community. It's very welcoming. It's very – it's fun. You know, it's not, not as uh, – I wouldn't say as pretentious. It's not as pretentious as New York or L.A. Right. And it's right. definitely a hell of a lot cheaper to live. And so yeah. I think that's why people – have been coming there and I think it's great, man. It's good for the good for the town and it's neat to see, you know, Steven Tyler do a country record because that genre is so wide right now. It's it's pretty cool, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know cities change and and people change it's been five years since american bang released wild and young uh in some ways five years isn't a lot of time but in your career a lot has happened in five years and i read a a 2010 interview where you said that, that that was the song that pretty well summed up you and your band but you know now you're you're married uh you've probably had more success as a songwriter than you imagined you would uh you've got more years and more experience under your belt so is the is the wild and young jaron johnston of 2010 the the same guy as 2015 jaron johnston
3: no it's more like old and done now <laughs> 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 no man <laughs> no i mean you know i'm definitely a very different person i've, I've grown up quite a bit in certain ways and um, you know keep but you know when you're on the road like this it keeps you young you know what i mean it keeps you feeling like that and you're excited and i, I you know back then i was a stupid kid right now i'm just a st- little older stupid kid
0: right <laughs> right, right
2: <laughs> well i i feel like we could probably sit here and talk about music and uh talk about rock and roll and country all day but um i know you got places to go and uh so we, we just we appreciate the time you've taken to sit down with us today man
3: Awesome, man. I appreciate you guys, man. That's awesome that you guys, you you know, Nashville. If you you guys ever get in, uh, hit me up, man. We'll go get a beer or something. All right, man. All right. Take care, guys.
2: Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list, so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so
1: please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Songcraft Show. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And of course, telling your friends about us and sharing links to Songcraft via social media is a crucial component of helping us share the wisdom and insight of some of the greatest songwriters around. We appreciate your support as part of the Songcraft community, and we thank you for helping us spread the word. Be sure to
2: subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. Because where I come from, only the horses run when the day is done.